Um, it is important that we come together, and and uh, it's certainly enjoyable for me to uh, to study. I enjoy studying and, and uh, getting information, and sometimes putting information together in format is, is what's more difficult. But uh, like I said the other night, it seems the ones that study often gets the most out of it. But God is good. His faithfulness is uh, very much present in our lives as Christians, as Anabaptist people. He's been faithful to us. Um, year after year, our forefathers have laid a good foundation for us. Uh, Jesus, God has not left them down. And I think we are blessed because of that today. Um, like uh, we mentioned before, stewardship is our, is our subject the, um, these few evenings. So tonight I'd like to go like a little different direction and we're going to talk about our resources, our money, our, like I told someone, this should be our biggest class because it seems like we really like money. But uh, that's okay. I think God is delighted when we meet, period, and whatever we talk about. But our resources, stewardship, taking care of the things that God has given us, I remind you that... Uh, a steward is, again, we are not the owner. We are only servants in taking care of the master's proceeds. That is what a steward is. Um, I think the slaves could understand that, at least a slave um, that kind of had a higher position could understand the idea of a steward very well. The scripture uses the word steward and and um, servant back and forth quite a bit. And you'll see that in some of the verses that we go to this evening. We talked about our lives as believers. We are caregivers. We must be God-centered. It must be God-centered. Everything that we do, everything that we own, it must be directed toward Him. Because without Him giving us resources, without Him allowing us to be fruitful and to be energetic and Fugal and things like that, we would have very little. And I think our, again, our forefathers have taught us very well, maybe too well, in how to work and work hard and sweat. And we have plenty. If, um, I'll talk about that a little later, some statistics about our culture. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, and we'll start out reading a few verses there. First Timothy 6, first few verses here, Let as many servants as are under the, the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Talking to the young Timothy leader here, and encouraging him, encouraging him in his church setting. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, into the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy and strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself." But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. 
and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they which but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's an age-old problem. Loving things and loving stuff. Isn't that amazing? Throughout humanity, people held tight onto stuff and things and money. He's encouraging young Timothy to be actively involved in helping his people realize the importance of money, but yet realizing that just be careful how much you get involved. One of the things that is, I believe is important is that we understand God's perspective on money. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of an upright... This is a different translation. The integrity of an upright man is as due north. Now, due north, if you, know, if you ever look for the north star, it is always at the same place. It never moves. It never changes. You can go to any country in the world and pretty much figure out which is north. It's off a little bit. depends where you're at. But what is due north... So proverb, the proverb writer in this translation says that the integrity of an upright man is like due north. It never changes. And I think one of the most important things that we can do as Christians is live with integrity in our finances, in our stuff. I'm calling it stuff or our possessions, our resources. Our integrity often meets its match in money matters. Don't let your integrity slip in small matters, and it will not fail you in crucial matters. Sometimes it seems like a small thing. And I'm thinking of taxation time and things like that. I think God is expecting us to be men of integrity, men of wisdom, men and women of wisdom. When we think of our money and what God has entrusted in us, I think he is very, very much interested and what we do with it. Money doesn't have a life. Now think about the cash, the dollar. It doesn't have any life. You can talk to that dollar, you can look at it, you can, that $100 bill, but it doesn't respond. It doesn't have a soul. It can't talk. It don't understand anything. The dollar, the almighty dollar, it can't even think. It never acts on its own. You have to move it if you want it to do something for you. It can't even commit crimes. It's never really good or bad. But everything I've mentioned there, it's involved with, ev with everything that we do or say. It is involved in scandalous things, money is. It is involved in crimes. People die because of money, because they can't get what they want. Scripture is full of verses talking about money. Over 2,300 times in the Bible, 
There's 2,300 verses that have the connotation or something about money. It's a lot more than faith and prayer combined. So why? Why, why would that be? Why is, it, why is it mentioned so often in Scripture? Let me ask you a question. I, I want some feedback on this. Give me some uh, people in Scripture that um, come to your mind quick or characters that really had a problem with money, that it ruined them or something like that. Let's have some feedback. What do you, who do you think of real quick? Good one. Solomon, someone said. Perfect. Yep. Judas. Okay. I'm sorry? Okay, the rich young ruler. Absolutely, yeah. And there's more. Now, give me some, give me some totally opposite, some that really benefited from money. Does Scripture give us any good characters that responded good for money? Who was that? Okay. Okay, there was a third one that, that threw it away. The other two did a good job. Okay, there's a few. Is there more? Right, I thought of that one too. He did a good job. He, he took his money and used it for a good cause. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another one here? Okay. Interesting. I, I just find it interesting that there is probably more negative character characteristics or characters that really used money in a negative way. I mean, the, the story of Judas is so sad. I mean, he, he loved money, and it cost him his life. Um, there's more. I think... It is a perfect example that, that I think Jesus was laying the groundwork for in Scripture and the writers that it's, it ruins probably way too many people. And it's sad. Someone has said wealth has ruined more men than poverty has. Think about that. I know men that one day were good biblical thinkers and wealth has ruined them, has taken them down the wrong path. You probably know men that way as well. First Timothy 5.8 says, we must provide for our own. That is, that is a command. We must provide for our Money is a good thing to, to a point. Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we have the scripture verses and the scripture, uh, scriptures backing us that money can be a positive tool. It is very much a part of our lives, but it can ruin us very quick. I have four points that I'd like to think about this evening um, as we think about the thing of money. Just kind of warnings, I guess. When it, how it relates to money, <clears throat> excuse me. Number one is be careful. Simple, just be careful. I think we need, as men especially, to be careful with what we do 
with our excess. Luke 12, 15 says, Take heed and be aware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses. We, I think the human mind is so caught up in just the desire for more. It is so much a human nature, the desire for more and more and still more. The warnings in Scripture are, I believe, loud and clear that we need to be very careful with what we do with our excess. Number two is guard your heart. Proverbs 28:22 says, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye, and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. How can we guard our heart? How, is there a good way that we can guard against the influences? Our social media ads, if you will, they are so much based on money and getting your money and doing anything they can to get your excess. Our Fabric in this country is designed to get money and to stimulate your mind in thinking you need things that really we don't need. I think as Christians, we need to be really careful and guard our heart against the things that are not necessary. He that hates us to be rich hath an evil eye. Let's really be careful. Number three is model responsibility. One of the things that I think we need to be very careful is with our children, with our children watching us. Someone has said, ask a wealthy man's child what, where his heart is, and you'll soon figure it out. What is our response toward the dollar and what we can get out of it? I'd like to read Luke 12. Verse 41, Luke 12, verse 41. And Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is faithful and wise servant, or steward, I'm sorry, who, actually another translation calls a servant there, who, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men's servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him, with, appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, did neither according to his will, 
shall be beaten with many stripes. I think we have an awesome responsibility in this country to model responsibility in our finances. I think our neighbors are watching, and I think people overseas are watching. Um, I'm, I'm particularly thinking of some of the missions that we're involved in. I think they are watching the American people and the American Christian. Number four I have here is fight for contentment. I think contentment is maybe the missing link in our lives, just being content with how God supplies and what he's done for us. I see it in my children, but then I think maybe it's even my problem. I think God expects us to be content. Hebrews 13.5, let your conversation be without covetousness and, con and be content with such things as you have. For he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake you. God will never let us down. We have never been hungry. I don't think any of us have ever really know what hunger really is. But contentment, godly contentment, I think, is what we should strive for. I think Jesus' most harsh words were probably to the money changers in the temple. And there might be others, but some of his most harsh words were to them temple dwellers that were in there trying to make money on his house. And I think that should be a good reminder to us. We should be careful how we and what we do in God's house. I think God is concerned. I think our conversations at church should be different than what they are elsewhere. Money should probably not be a part of our conversation in our church services too much. The love of money has ruined a lot of good men. And I want to make that clear. I think the scripture says it's the love of money is the root of all evil. And if you watch history and if you watch any kind of national news, it is interesting how men of fame have crashed, as you will, if I can say it that way. They've, they've lost their identity, their integrity for sure. And I think we need to be aware of that as men. Men have lost their integrity because of money. Money ruins families. It is the number one reason for divorce. It ruins individuals. And I say it ruins men, and I say that because I believe that us men have the bigger problem. You know, interestingly, if you, if you look at the tithing thing, if people tithing, did you know that women tithe more than men? But yet money seems to ruin more men than women. But it's, it's been nationally, it's known that women tithe more than men of their, of their goods, of their percentage. The love of money has caused people to take their own lives. It has caused wars. 
It has caused nation to rise against nation. The love of money has ruined careers. The love of money affects people's mind to the point that sometimes they really lose their mind. One place in scripture it says that it's like a canker. It's just something really weird and just nasty. It ruins your thinking. I believe the love of money has ruined the moral compass of our country. And the list could go on and on. How much different do you and I live as Anabaptist people than the culture around us when it rega- in regards to money and our possessions? Money is a temptation. It's a trap. It's an intoxicant. It's a sedative. It's a sedative appealing, addicting, and confusing. It's the fuel that drives the engine of the world's dynamic open market economies. It begins as an inspiration and becomes an assumption, a right. It starts as an occupation and eventually becomes a preoccupation. And we want it. We still want it. The irony of all this is that no matter how much a person does or accomplishes or has, it never seems to be enough. Enough is no longer enough. No wonder with this mentality or intoxicant, people never seem to have enough of time. They're pursuing a path that leads to nowhere or climbing a ladder that is leaning against the wrong wall. Now let's talk about the good of money. I think it's not a negative subject. It should be good. The excess money that the Americans have made have placed, have, have made missions successful across the globe, and I think that's good. There's been missions in South America. There's been missions in China. I think of the story of um, Elizabeth Elliot and Nate Saint and how they died for their faith because they went into an unreached tribe. Beautiful story. It was it five men that were killed? As they flew in there and a bunch of men didn't know them, they were basically landed there and they took their lives. And, but out of that, out of, it took money to get there, obviously. But out of that came a lot of good reading material and things like that and the story. And out of that even came the whole tribe coming to the Father, coming to Jesus through that. So really, our excess money from our the Christians in this country have been a real blessing to a lot of other people. And I think we need to keep that in mind. It's not, an old, it's not always a negative thing. It can do so much for, for us and for the Christians in other countries. I like to think of tithing a little bit. Just some statistics. This is kind of shocking. Did you know that only 5% of churchgoers tithe? And of them 5%, they only give 2% on an average. So on a national level, Christians have not been following the biblical principle of tithing. But even so, there's still like $5.2 trillion that goes into, 
into other missions and 501c3, things like that. So it, there's still a lot of money goes into it, but only 5% of American Christians, I hope our percentages are higher than that. Let's think of our, this is again some statistics that I find interesting. We, and I'm trying to persuade us that we are really a blessed people, and we really are. I think we can understand that. Um, the national average of a wage per family is only like $400 per month. So if you put that in perspective, this is, this is, this is nationwide, this is actually, this is international. But then put ourselves in that perspective, how we are probably, I think it's one half of the 1%, the high level in basically all of us. So we've been a blessed people. God has given us so much. And I think it's because that the people of this country, the founders, have turned their hearts toward God. And there's still some righteousness here, and I'm glad for that. I think God has blessed us in a lot of different ways. And we as Anabaptists have been blessed. Our forefathers have given us so much to think about and uh, have given us a good work ethic. Okay. And he. Okay. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And he was another one that I was thinking, you know, he used his, his uh, wealth got to him, but he turned around. He was one that changed his lifestyle and said, I will repay up to, what was it, four times or something like that? Yep. Good example. First Peter. In Peter, the, the writings of Peter, he says that uh, we must grasp exactly who we really are as Christians. We're children of God. We're not citizens of this country. We're citizens of, heavenly, of the heavenly country. We should think about that. We are not here to stay. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are aliens, Scripture says. We are earth dwellers. We dwell here only for a certain time in search of something that is much greater. Something of meaning, of purpose. Paul reminds us, and we must be diligent in comprehending exactly who we are as Christians, where we're going, where we are and where we're going. It seems everything in the world is just designated to draw our attention away from the Father. It is so much a part of our lives as far as our work and our, our monetary system, I think it's important that we turn our hearts toward God daily and ask Him for wisdom in directing our finances. We are servants. We are stewards of the Master. We can do nothing. We can gain nothing without His blessing. But He has blessed us in a lot of different ways, and I think we need to be seriously concerned about what happens with our finances. Scripture says, much is given, much is required. How can we do that? What is required of us as his people? I believe God requires that we return to him what he's first given to us. Through tithing, through helping of others, and I think we have a good example just in our churches, we've helped our own brothers and we've helped our own sisters 
and we've helped people across the, across the world, across the globe. That's how it should be. God give us wisdom as we do that daily. Abraham sacrificed pretty much everything that he had, but that was his intention. But God said at the last second, no, I was just testing you. I believe God tests us in ways sometimes. And we should recognize that, that he's testing us sometimes through our finances and through our possessions and resources and seeing how much we are really enslaved to them. Jonah gave everything that he had by reaching the people of Nineveh. Yes, he ran for a while, but he turned his life around, and he had some problems, just like some of us do sometimes, about what he was supposed to do. But at the end of the day, a whole group of people returned and came back to the Lord because he offered his gift. It wasn't a monetary gift, but it was a gift of salvation. This is not original with me, but somebody has said one day, what, who would you be, who would I be, if every dollar would be taken away from you? You'd have nothing to go on. I think sometimes we rely way too much on our money, the things that we've been given. Who would we be if everything was taken away, including our I remember Zach Poonin preaching a number of years ago, listening to his preaching, and he was talking about this whole idea of stewardship and losing everything you had. And he said, I left church one evening, and I was sure when I get home that my house is going to be fully engulfed in flames. He was so willing to just give it all. It didn't happen, but he was just making a point that as he came around the corner, he was surprised to see his house is still intact. If everything is taken away from us, seriously everything, who would we be? Do we lean on our resources? Proverbs 28, 25 says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts the Lord, he will be enriched. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. That's an Old Testament concept. We have no power. God gives you men the grace and the strength to make a living and to do what you need to do. And I believe we need to recognize that he is the giver of everything that we have. Proverbs fifteen twenty seven: Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles not only himself, but he troubles his entire household. Our families are affected, men, by our greed, if that's what it is. It doesn't only affect us, it affects people around us. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting out with new wine. I think God is waiting to bless us even more if we give more. 
And you've all heard the statement, you know, you need to give until it hurts and then keep giving until it don't hurt anymore. And I think that is so true for the Christian. Give until it hurts and then give until it doesn't hurt anymore. You know, our lives are made up basically of work and and it's all, I think, I think our work is good. I think we need to be studious and hardworking people. Um, but maybe sometimes we could give a little more time to the Lord. This is kind of the story of us people. We work for money, we save money, we spend money, we tithe money, and we stress over money. Isn't that who we are? I trust that our lives will be enriched by giving more and allowing God to use the money that is first his and we can reinvest into his kingdom. There's a gentleman by the name of Jim Reeves. They called him Gentleman Jim. And he had a childhood dream of being a pitcher, a big league ball game pitcher. And he, he pitched three years for the St. Louis Cardinals and his, it was quickly ended when his sciatic nerve started making trouble, and he basically lost his childhood dreams. But he popularized the song. He didn't write it, but he popularly, really made it a popular song. He said, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The treasures I laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And so much that the angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I think Jim understood the reality that even though childhood dreams are shattered, childhood ambitions are gone, yet we're not here to stay. He understood that. He was a singer. He um, sang a lot of songs and concerts and people just flocked to hear him. But I think that's the reason why he understood that this world is only... We are only here for a short time, and we will pass on. So I, I would just pray that God would give us the wisdom and the understanding that we need to follow him and to follow through with his principles. The whole idea of tithing, um, I would like to do a little more study on that, but I, I think we understand that tithing is an Old Testament idea. And it carries very little over into the New Testament, but yet I think it is a good idea. Malachi 3, and I think I'm going to turn to that, the book of Malachi in chapter 3. And here he talks about this tribe, this, these Israelite people that were turning their back on God. And they were really, the bottom line was they were taking money that really belonged to God. That 10% that was supposed to go to the, to the Levites and however they did it. But verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God, yet ye have robbed me? But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye, in the, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there, that there may be meat in mine house, 
And prove me now wherewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, and there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a picture, I believe, of what we can be as Anabaptist people if we follow God's principles in tithing. The statistics are not good for Christians. But I believe if we do God's plan and do his, what he is asking for, so I'm not going to give a number. I, I think we, we know this. We've heard plenty of teaching on the tithes and offerings. We've heard it. And I think God is expecting us to give and give and continue to give. And he will just open up the windows of heaven. I think that's what he's doing. I think he's done that for us. We should be a blessed. We should be blessing God daily for what he's done for us. We live in a land of freedom. We live in a land that is, is bursting at the seams, I believe. But yet God is good to us. Sometimes the political system looks dim and we wonder where it's going to go next. But I think at the end of the day, God is so good. And let's bless him for it. Let's, let's be concerned about our children, and as far as our finances, God will do his part if we do ours. Yeah. They will be rich. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm not implying that 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 we're that we are bad people, but too often it goes that way. We love it so much that we just we just fall. And and I, I think, like I said, it has ruined more people than it should have. And I think we need to be concerned about that. How are we portraying that to our sons and our daughters? Yeah. I agree, I agree, John. Yes, sir. That's, that's exactly right. The love of money is the root of all evil. But when we see how that it, is, it has ruined men, it has ruined countries, it has ruined relationships, it has ruined marriages, it should behoove us. It should sh make us stop in our tracks. And how can we do better? I think it's important that we do better. I didn't hear a buzzer, but I think my time is here to close. God bless you. Thank you, Alfie. Um, everybody could stand up, and does somebody have a chorus they'd like to sing? Or uh, I couldn't think of anything. If anybody has a chorus, just uh, this world is not my home. Just uh, passing through. My
you can be seated. And uh, Sam and Maddie will come forward and share. Around 1850, that would be 170 years ago, a man, a poet by the name of James Russell Lowell, wrote a number of poems. He is an American poet. In one of his poems, he said this, What is so rare as a day in June? Then, if ever, come what? Perfect days. I'll repeat. What is so rare as a day in June? Then, if ever, come perfect days. We have certainly had lots of perfect days in June, but it will change before long. We're talking tonight about, Matt and I want to share a few stories of God's providence and direction of God in our personal lives or our lives as a family. First of all, I'd like to go back about 75 years, actually 75 and a half years when I was born in November of 1946. My father was 24 years old. My mother was 20. They didn't have children for a few years, so after the third year, of marriage, they took in a small girl, a baby girl actually, and they named her Dorothy. And then she was adopted later, a few years later then she was adopted. So time went on, there were three more years until my till mother had her firstborn child after six years. They named her Anna. She ended up in Brazil, was there for 50 years. She died last year, a year ago she died. She had 10 children, 50 grandchildren, and 50 great-grandchildren. Most of those are in Brazil today. So my my parents, Ilma and Edna Kaufman, have over 100 descendants in Brazil today. Well, after Anna, then two years later, Marion was born, and she eventually married Aaron Lapp. She, I think they were married almost 50 years, 50, 50 some years. She died at six, age of 67, and that was in 2006. So it was seven years until 1946 when I came on the scene. So what happened in those seven years? Well, my mother was in her 30s, and, um, and she had about three or four miscarriages. We found out later, of course, or I found out later. Uh, why Marion was se- why there's seven years between Marion and myself. So the doctor suggested that maybe she should have surgery and have an operation, a hysterectomy, because she was having problems. This was in her 30s. But I suppose my dad wasn't too eager about this. He had three little girls, three little girls. So the doctor said, okay, we'll give you one more chance. We'll give you one more chance. And I'm standing here today. So not only that, that was in 1946, not only that, my sister Elsie was born the next year, Amos the next, well, there's a year in between there, but there were four of us, Carol the youngest, four of us were born in less than five years. Actually, just over four years, there were four of us. So, 
When I was born, my oldest sister, Dorothy, said, oh, she's so happy that she has a little brother because now she won't have to sweep the forebay anymore. Well, it took a few years until I could sweep the forebay, but I did it many, many times in my life. And today that barn is gone and the forebay is gone with it as well. I'm saying this to, to show that I believe the Lord we're talking about providence. By the way, I was going to mention what that means. I think it means or it means divine guidance. Providence, we talk about providence is divine guidance from God or care or protection. And I believe that the Lord provided that guidance and protection. The next incident is what took place in our, with our family in Kenya in 2010. Most of the missionaries that go to Kenya, they spend a few years there, and during that time, they like to go to the ocean. You see, Kenya is on the east coast, and so they like to take trips to Mombasa, which is a seaport or a town along the Indian Ocean. It's about a day's drive, a good day's drive from our units where we lived, and so we decided we would like to go see the ocean as well, the Indian Ocean. So we got in our van, and we headed out and had long trip to there, to the ocean. We rented a house, a home on the shore, on the banks of that, of that ocean. And it was during full moon, actually it was the most beautiful full moon probably that I've seen, we've seen in a long time. Can you imagine being there and a lot of palm trees around and in the distance, the moon is coming up over the ocean, beautiful full moon. I don't know much about tides, and I don't suppose you know a lot about tides either. We don't live close to the ocean. But during full moon and new moon, the tides are extra high and extra low. And so that means there's faster movement in the tides. If this were the earth, the sun over here and full moon, the sun here and the moon, the moon is on this side, they pull this way and the water in the earth tends to move more, because there's more pull there. When there's new moon, they're both in this side. Let's say the earth and the moon are both in this side. I mean, the sun and the moon on this side, and they're pulling together. So we have more, more strength, higher tides. When there's a first quarter, let's say the, the moon is here and the sun here, they kind of work against each other, same way when the moon comes around to the other quarter, to the third quarter. This plays into our story. Well, we wanted to go out into the water. So the next day, the tide was out. And it, the, the water was only about this deep, a foot or so. And it went a long ways, about 800 feet, which is probably further than the fence out there, out in that wheat field somewhere. It's where we went, and the water was very shallow. Because out there, there was some uh, rocks or something because there were, little, there were waves there. There was some activity. The water was moving. So the four oldest and I walked out there. The oldest was 19. The, youngest, uh, the fourth child was 13. So they were teenagers. David and Myrna were only 10 years old. They were born in 2000. So they stayed back with Maddie. <clears throat> they were a bit too small, too small to go out there. We went out there and had a good time playing in the water and the waves. And we didn't think about the tide coming back. And where we were, somehow or other, we didn't 
it got a little bit deeper, but we didn't realize what was happening back in the shore. And Maddie all of a sudden realized that when she was looking down from the house, the water on the, on the shore looked like it was higher than we out there, 800, 900 feet away. We were still playing in water two feet deep. And the water was rising rapidly. So she started praying and praying, I guess. We never talked about this very much because I don't even like to think about it. You prayed, how would you say? I can't get the word. She prayed for about half, maybe a half an hour. Was it a half an hour? She was in distress for half an hour. We were out there frolicking in that, in that water, but it kept getting deeper at the shore. Finally, we decided, well, maybe we should go start back. Maybe it's about time to go back. She tried to get our attention, but you know, you can't shout to somebody way out there in the ocean. She tried taking a mirror and reflecting the sunlight to make you know, some kind of a bright light here. We weren't paying attention. We started back, and as we got close to the shore, we realized the water was getting pretty deep. And I, there was one time when I went into a little bit of a shallow spot and the water was over my head. And I realized I couldn't swim as far as from here to the cars back there. I wouldn't be able to swim that. Well, I walked, moved a little bit, then I was able to walk again. But we did, all four of the children, and I were able to then walk to the edge, to walk out. The water was not over our heads, but it was coming up very quickly. So we thank God for his providence, his guidance, and his care and protection. And when I think back on that, just, you know, I don't like to think about it, but I suppose that the children, somebody would have drowned there, or maybe all of us. That would have been quite an experience for this lady and the two children back in the, in the shore. <clears throat> but you know, some people have drowned in those situations. I think of Anthony Byler in 1977. He was 17 years old. Roman son Anthony went to Belize to teach Bible school. And he and Eldon Hosteller went to the river, to the Belize River. At that particular place, it's fairly deep, and I suppose there's quite a bit of current, more than you think. And he swam, and Anthony wanted to swim. He swam 100 feet across the water and sat on the other side on the bank. He was probably tired. Eldon didn't go into the water, and so Anthony started back, but he didn't quite make it. You know the story. And by the way, this book has a lot of information in it for those early days. This is the 25th anniversary of Amish Mennonite Aid, 1955 to 1980. And Andy Hirschberger compiled this. It's made up of uh, different accounts by different persons in the mission field. So if you have interest in AMA in the early days, first 25 years, I'm not sure where you get this book. How many have it? I guess maybe you don't know. A few of you. Uh, anyway, it's very interesting. It has, has all those details in it. But the problem, uh, then <clears throat> the next day or so, Professional divers were diving, looking for this body, for Anthony's body. It took him quite a while to find it. It eventually found him 12 feet, it was 12 feet deep there, close to where he had gone into the water. But the river was just powerful enough, I guess, enough of current there that made him tired and he couldn't come back all the way. 17 years old. <clears throat> Floyd Miller from Kansas also drowned in El Salvador. Floyd was a missionary in El Salvador. 
also a young man, and he and three other young men went to the ocean. My parents were on the board at that time, and they went to El Salvador and Belize uh, on AMA delegation back in 1965. In 1965. And it was in November, it was Thanksgiving time, and they thought they would take, they would have a picnic and go out to the ocean. And my father tells the story later. So these, there, were, there were a number of people, it wasn't just these young fellows, but there were four young men, and they wanted to go swimming. They went into the water about waist deep, and all of a suddenly a, a large wave, a larger wave, came over them and kind of swept them back a bit, and they couldn't touch the bottom anymore. They couldn't touch the, the ground anymore. I don't know how good swimmers they were, but when you're swept back into the, toward, into the ocean, yeah, <clears throat> it's difficult. Well, those men, those young boys, struggled and struggled and struggled. One of them finally made, came out. Another one, Jake Hirschberger, um, not the one we know about, but the young man was married. He was in mission work there. And he was just about exhausted about giving up. And he saw his wife and my parents and the other missionaries on the shore and they were on their knees and they were just praying and praying. And he saw his wife there and he made one more effort and he eventually did make it. But he and Gid Peter he and Gid Petersheim, Gideon is from Peckway, they were so exhausted. I mean they were just absolutely exhausted. The third one had come out earlier, but <clears throat> Miller, what did I say his name was? Floyd Miller disappeared. Later, and they had the natives there told him, there's a lot of detail here, I don't have time to go into that, but the natives told him that it would take 24 hours till the body would wash up somewhere else on the shore. And they were right. The next day, there was a body found about five miles from where, he, from where they were swimming. And of course, there's a lot involved there too, but uh, he was buried, was buried there, and maybe some of you have been to his gravesite in El Salvador, Floyd Miller from Kansas. Well, I know you all have stories to tell. We all have stories. Well, the Lord has blessed us, has provided for us, has protected us. So I think that's all I'll share at this time. Maddie would like to share the experience she had when we came back from Kenya. Sam skipped a lot from birth to Kenya. <laughs> Actually, um, I was born in Kelowna, Iowa as a little Amish girl in um, December of 1962. He would have been 16 years old at that time. And I'm sure some of you heard this story on the day that he was born. On the day I was born, he was washing his car. He had just turned 16. He was getting ready for um, course practice, and he washed his car that evening. And um, little did he know that, anyway, I was way out there. My parents were Amish, and two weeks before I was born, my dad was ordained a minister, and about four years later, he was ordained bishop. And um, I can't really say that my world was small, 
because we traveled a lot and we ended up moving around a lot. My father became converted. By the time he was a bishop, he was 26 years old. And um, by the time um, he was 30, he became converted. And I remember that well. And soon he started getting restless because he wasn't sure he wanted to raise his family in the Amish culture in the Amish church. We were thinking about moving to um, <clears throat> Indiana to a conservative church and there was such a ruckus because he was bishop and had oversight over two churches. There was such a ruckus among his um, family and the church people that we gave it up and a cousin suggested we move to Wisconsin to the New Order Church where we ended up staying there for three years. Eventually we moved to Missouri and then um, five years of crop failures brought us to Pennsylvania. That's how I caught up with him. To put things in perspective, when Sam was born, my dad was only six years old. That's sort of interesting. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> it just sort of seems like timing is a little bit off. <laughs> we married in 1990, and um, we ended up with five children, and we ended up adopting one. And I'm going to go into the adoption story. This, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what you were talking about after we returned from Kenya. But um, the, the adoption story from start to finish took about three years and three months. And the last three months I spent in Ukraine. About three people suggested, we had our five children, my husband was old, <laughs> why are we trying to adopt? Three people suggested within a period of about six months, why don't you, three different people, three different times, why don't you adopt a boy? Like, uh, what? But this got a hold of me. And sometimes when there's a calling it just really grips you. And I was never driven to do any one thing like I was with this, this incident. From where? We didn't know. The, world, the whole world was open. El Salvador, Guatemala, we didn't know. I was mulling around with this thing in my mind. We were praying about it. One night, I had a dream between 3.30 and 4 o'clock in the morning. All I saw was Ukraine and block letters, black letters on a yellow wall. I sat straight up in bed. I told Sam, it's Ukraine. Later we found out that Ukraine was the only country we could adopt from because they had no upper age limit. 45 years old was the, the limit for the oldest parent, and um, Sam was close to 60 by the time we got it done. Anyway, <clears throat> going a, backtracking a little bit into Iowa. Dave Bontrager came one, one day at our Amish sewing circle in Kelowna, Iowa. He was a good friend of my dad's and he was involved with some Jews behind the Iron Curtain and um, he told us some stories. 
And probably one of my biggest concerns as a child growing up is that the, someday the communists are going to come. That was probably my biggest fear. And they would for sure get my daddy because he was a minister, a pastor, and sort of a dramatic one. And um, I would cry myself to sleep thinking about these children. Their daddy was taken away into prison. I think back then that was that first seed was planted to take care of an Eastern European child. Anyway, we ended up in Ukraine. It was a very difficult process the whole three years. Very few people know what we went through the, the three years before we ever got. I mean, um, we had an 18-page document. It was called a dossier, and um, every page had to be notarized. Every page had to have the state seal, and I made eight trips up to the Harrisburg complex. Anyway, we finally went. It was Daniel and Sam and I, and um, Daniel was about 13 years old, and since this was going to be a brother, we decided <clears throat> we'll take him along, we'll involve him. It wasn't long until we discovered we chose David. It was called a blind adoption. We all decided among ourselves that um, we won't tell each other. This was Sam, Daniel, and I, and we prayed with the mission people, or they prayed with us to choose who are we going to choose? It was, it was really an unnerving feeling. Our, it was like buying a car. How can you choose one child above the other? And we all chose the same one. It was David. Only then did they tell us that he's from the far southwestern corner of the country and um, about 500 miles away. I made seven trips by train. <clears throat> back and forth, doing legal stuff. We got into a very difficult region, similar to what we would call the Apple or the Smoky Mountains, just mountain people. Thick-headed judge, he wouldn't cooperate. David was what we thought was a nice orphanage. It was very well cared for, and um, we could tell there was a certain amount of money going through this place, and we're now discovering from what therapists have been helping David that there was sex trafficking going on there. I, was, I lived there for a month. Couldn't talk to anybody. A friend had given me a cell phone, and if I hung out the window at a certain place in a certain angle, I could get service. <laughs> One of those old flip phones. Anyway, we were, <clears throat> Sam made three trips back and forth, and um, court hearings failed. Anyway, fast forward. I'm going into the last week. My time was running out. You could be in the country for three months without a visa, and I had about a week left. We were, there were many little, little, Things that happened that were miracles, things that should have happened didn't, and things that shouldn't have did. And um, it was just sort of the way it was. I was, I'm sort of a emotional kind of a person, 
and um, my, my emotions were just flat. It was like a chicken sitting on eggs. That's about all I can compare it to. Just whatever. This and that happened, whatever. We had a facilitator named Igor. He used to be um, a Soviet soldier under Brezhnev, I believe. And um, he could speak English. And he did, he did very well. He did special adoptions, and most of his adoptions he did were Israeli Jews, the Orthodox Jews. And I guess we fell into that category somehow, probably just by the way we looked. <clears throat> and um, our taxi driver that we ended up with down in David's um, re um, region was um, a KGB colonel. It was just ironic. <laughs> with this Anabaptist lady. These three men I ran around with a lot. One night we were, we were in a hurry to get, it was the last week, we were in a hurry to get the adoption decree. Time was close, I mean, it was getting a little bit late and um, we headed out, it was about an hour away to the courthouse in David's birth town and um, the taxi driver's alternator gave out, so we had to turn around and get his personal vehicle, and he had it full of guns in the back, and I sat amid the, the fray, and we took off, and it was the wildest ride of my life. I sat in the back with a bunch of guns with these two men, and I thought, oh my, if Sam could see me now. <laughs> we got there. <clears throat> it didn't end up very well. The, the lady wasn't cooperating, and... Um, Anyway, we didn't have any service in that town. It was just a remote mountain village. And um, suddenly my phone rang. I was like, whoa. I answered it, and it was my dad from Missouri. <laughs> I had no service. These are some of the um, examples of things that happened. We talked about two minutes. He asked me what the prayer request is. They're having prayer meeting. He would like to know and present it to the church. I told him the present need, and we got cut off. Anyway, <clears throat> we ended up going back the next morning, and um, KGB Igor, he was a very key person because he had connections. He was not happy with the lady at the courthouse, so he said he's going to report her to her superior to the county seat, which was um, about another hour away, and we went over there. That last week was very tense, <clears throat> and um, while we were waiting there, getting the documents in an old um, courthouse, there was a bat on the loose <laughs> in the courthouse, and I got a case of the giggles. And anyway, it ended, everybody ended up laughing. We finally got our things across, and um, I want you to remember this document we worked so hard for. It was called the Adoption Decree, and it was um, um, a piece. It was basically David's birth certificate in Ukrainian stating that we were his parents. Anyway... Then we, needed a birth, then we needed a passport to get out of the country. I only had about a week left to be in country legally. Passports usually take about 21 days. Again, KGB Igor played into the scene, and he went straight to, to his um, friends, and we had it in about five hours. 
We had to race to catch the train to go back to Kiev. Another wild ride. That man really could drive. And um, when I said goodbye to him, KGB or Igor, he, he was the taxi driver for, and um, 500 miles south, southwest there in um, western Ukraine. He asked me, he couldn't speak English, this was all through a translation. He asked me why their country is so corrupt. Then he answered his own question saying it's because we aren't honoring God. And I just nodded my head. I left that man standing in tears. He said, I never did anything. I never worked so hard to do to help a woman with her son, like I did with you. We headed back to um, Kiev, and we wrapped things up legally. Uh, it was just before Christmas. I was ready to go home. I hadn't seen Myrna and Miriam for three months. They grew about two inches <laughs> while I was gone, so it seemed. David and Ruth Miller were <clears throat> part of the mission there in Kiev. They took me to the airport on the designated morning. It was snowing. It seemed like every time somebody, one of our party wanted to fly out, it was snowing. And they dropped me off about 6 o'clock in the morning at the airport. And um, I was exhausted from all the tests and the stress. And, and little did I realize that I was, my biggest test was coming. I gave my phone to them because I couldn't use it. They could use it as a second phone, mission phone. Gave my Russian, my Ukrainian money away. I was ready to go home. David was with me. We checked in. We went up to passport control. <clears throat> we checked in our luggage. We went up to passport control. And um, I stood in line, and the man behind the glass box or the glass wall was a thick-necked, formidable-looking fellow. And he said, I need to see your adoption decree. And I was like, I, I sort of drew a blank. I was like, what are you talking about? I, I didn't have it. I had my pack of documents. I turned around and I, I had met two other ladies from Chicago who were at the embassy, adoption embassy, a few days prior. And I said, what does an adoption decree look like? And they showed me and I was just like, anyway, he said, you can't get on. And David and I turned away and we went back into the luggage area or the check, the main area and um, try to figure out what to do. No money, no phone. And um, I, I just didn't know what to do. I bowed my head and I prayed. I said, Lord, show me what to do. I stood in line again. I thought maybe I should go through my suitcase, retrieve my suitcase somehow that was checked in and see if it's in there. And the prompting kept coming to me. It came to me about three times, go back to the man. <laughs> behind the glass box. I didn't want to. There were three, three different people there. By now the crowd was dwindling a little bit and I knew my time was running out a little bit. Our flight left at eight. And um, I left the luggage line and I went back upstairs to this big foyer area. It was quite a bit larger than this room. And um, I 
started going to the lady. God said, no, you go right back to this man. So I went back to this man and stood in line. There were about three ahead of me, and when he saw me, he just his neck just got thicker, and he pinched his lips together, and I could tell he was not pleased to see me at all. I said, I don't know what to do. So he came out from behind his box and told me to give him all my documents, and I gave it to him. We started walking back to the main office. Meanwhile, off to my left, this whole room was empty. Off to my left, I saw an official standing there watching us. <clears throat> and as we walked catty corner like this, he met us. And he, he looked at me and he looked at the officer and he said, are you having trouble? He spoke perfect English. That got my attention right away because anybody, most of the people can't even speak English and those who do speak English, they're so hard to understand. He spoke American English, and he had brilliant blue eyes, so, such a kind face. I just went, oh. I gave my documents to him. The other fellow snorted and walked away. <clears throat> and um, we went into the main office. David was with me. He kept tugging my hand and saying he couldn't talk English either. He kept saying, semi-load, semi-load. I found later that meant airplane, airplane, come on, let's get on the airplane. We went into the main office. There were about six officials there lounging around, and we gave them our documents. They all were sort of evasive, typical communistic mentality. Nobody wanted to be responsible. Nobody wanted to, what am I supposed to wrap this up? And... Um, they just sort of puttered around there and shuffled the documents back and forth. These were 18 pages. They looked through it, and the man behind the glass counter looked through all my documents, couldn't find the adoption decree. These guys all looked through everything, and they couldn't find it. And we thought, well, then the, the nice fellow, I hardly know what to call him, he said, let's go back into the luggage. So I went, so we went back into the luggage. He just took me and went back there. He, was, he had a uniform on. And um, there were about a, a dozen men back there. And I saw my suitcase in the wagon. And um, I told him it's right there. He pulled it out. And he, just like that, we had about eight officers looking to see if I'm putting any bomb in the suitcase. He, and the, the nice fellow said, hurry up. We're not supposed to be back here. It's dangerous. <laughs> So I quickly grabbed uh, another pack of documents and got out of there. We looked through that thing. We couldn't find anything. We went um, back, <clears throat> back upstairs. And um, after a while, he said, wait here. He walked away with everything. <clears throat> David and I stood there, stripped of everything, passport and everything. After a while, he came back, and he said, follow me. He took us right through security. I wanted to ask him, what, what happened? How did you do it? I mean, he took me up to security. I was putting through my stuff. Meanwhile, he kept talking into a walkie-talkie, and I later found out he was talking to the pilot, telling them to wait on me. They waited on me probably 15 minutes. We probably left about 15 minutes late. As um, I went through security, I turned around. He was standing there smiling at me. 
and I had to mind my business and get through through my get my stuff through. Got my stuff through, and um, another person was a lady was trying to lead me on to get me on the airplane. I turned around, and the man wasn't there. I don't know who he was. If he was an angel, I can't prove that he was an angel. I can't prove that he wasn't. I tend to think he was, but if he was, he had one serious case of acne. He was about 25 years old. We got on the airplane and everybody clapped. <clears throat> By the time um, we were arriving home, I realized again I'm going to need this adoption decree to show to the embassy in New York City. Then the pilot came on the scene and he said, he will lead. He realizes there are some adoptees on the plane. He will lead us and he led us right around customs. We got home. Fast forward a little bit. This adoption decree was still, we still needed this adoption decree to get all the legal stuff done here for David. The next morning I laid everything out on the table, all 18 pages, it was not there. I just couldn't find it. I put everything back into the envelope and stuffed it in a drawer. In April, Sam said it's tax time, or probably in March. He said, um, let's see what our expenses were, and we need to start working on some documents for David. Anyway, I got out all my papers again, laid them all out. There it was. I have no explanation. I don't know how many officials went through that packet and couldn't find it, but when I needed it, here, I had it. About all I can say is that God did this to prove himself, how can I say it, for his honor and glory. There, were, there was one verse I clung to a lot. <clears throat> While I was going through all these, um, I dealt with lots and lots of officials. Jeremiah 1, I came across there when I was there. I did a lot of Bible reading and prayer. I could say lots and lots of stories. It would probably take me five hours. Jeremiah 1, verse 7, The Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, or a little Anabaptist woman. For thou shalt go unto all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Don't be afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. I clung to that verse a lot. I was never afraid. I traveled around with taxi drivers alone, people I couldn't talk to. One, one turned on the radio to the English station, and it wasn't fit to hear. I was glad he couldn't understand it. After a while, he turned to the Russian station, and he was probably glad I couldn't understand it. Anyway, another time I, I did travel down to Romania one time to um, visit Nate and Martha Bang. And um, I traveled alone with a taxi driver and um, he delivered me to Bruce Yancey's down in um, Trinov Sea. And um, when we crossed the border there, 
he couldn't speak English, I couldn't speak, I mean, I couldn't speak Ukrainian, and nobody knew what was going on. Somehow I got across the border. They all just sort of shrugged their shoulders. And after we were through, and the, the taxi driver looked at me and says, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, when we got to Bruce Yancey's, Ruth Ann met me there, and she said, never do that again. I was like, okay, you do what you got to do. This is one thing, I'm, I'm sort of an Oswald Chambers fan, and I like a lot of his quotes, and this is one that um, I also like. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. If you don't fear God, you fear everything else. This is another one that I had on my cupboard door during the whole process. Faith never knows where it's being led, but loves and knows the one who is leading. Don't be afraid to stick out your neck. If you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. And don't leave your boat on, on the dock. That's not where it belongs. It belongs out there, and you might get battered and beaten. That's all I've got. I might as well quit now. <laughs>